0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Sylvia. And Sylvia is on the journey of self discovery after enduring a lifetime of generational trauma. It's a story of self doubt, deriving worth from within, abusive relationships, survival mode, smear campaigns, and custody battles. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Sylvia. How are you?
1: I am good today. How are you?
0: I am doing well, and if you want to be a guest like Sylvia is today, Please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a the button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And today you're going to hear Sylvia's story and it's one of generational trauma and abusive relationship and self-discovery. And we talk a lot about belief systems on the show, many being created due to trauma. And with Sylvia, you're going to hear a story of someone who is actively doing the work to put an end to the patterns of intergenerational trauma that led to her becoming entangled in an abusive relationship. Our podcast talks to people in all phases of their discovery. So this episode is a story of the abuse Sylvia endured, but with a focus on her own moving parts as she discovers new things in a life after trauma and what healing looks like for her. So before we get to Sylvia, a big content warning on this episode for this episode as we do discuss physical abuse, and it's a graphic description. So if this is not for you, please do turn this episode off now. So with that being said, I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Sylvia, the floor is now yours.
1: Thank you. I just wanted to start by saying that it has been a very enlightening up and down, lights on, lights off in my head kind of uh, journey for for me um, to, to do this. And I'm really excited to be able to tell my story without being broken down and victimizing myself. <laughs> and that, that just doesn't help anybody, especially me. So... I was a pretty feisty child. Um, when I was six years old, I remember uh, my mom and dad were in a kind of conflict and he was kind of chasing her around the house and she kept saying, stop. And he didn't want to do that. So I just got up and spit in his face. That wasn't very well received uh, in in the by my father, and uh, of course I don't really remember much about what happened after that. I can tell you that I pretty much felt like the black sheep in my family because I had feelings and I couldn't talk about them. Whenever I did express myself, I you know I was told that it was all in my head, and I would say, "Of course it's in my head. That's where ideas come from." That's where thoughts come from, but I really felt like, you know, in Rudolph, the um, they had the Island of Misfit Toys, and I really felt like I belonged there, so whenever I'd watch the cartoon, I'd be like, yeah, which one of those are, are, are me, Um, because I just didn't fit in in my family. I was a really good student, uh, made straight A's, and most, most of the times I was in gifted classes, but I didn't realize that school was just a way that I was able to hold the craziness at home together and teachers didn't know that there was something going on I didn't know I mean I just thought you know most kids don't like their parents (laughs) and that that was the normal you know and um then when I was 14 in, in middle school I had a lot of trouble with intimate relationships and that's when I first started drinking. Um, alcohol. So I just didn't know how to fit in slash belong because really it was about belonging and I just didn't even feel like the place that I was spent so much time at which was my home I didn't even belong. So um, I kept asking for help and that I didn't get help um, from my parents. They I was very hyper-independent when I was five. I told my mom I didn't need her to walk me to school. I was gonna do that, you know, with a friend. I was okay, and she took that to heart and held it against me for pretty much 40 years after that. And she would throw my independence back in my face. No, you're independent, you don't, you don't need anybody. And so I think it was an excuse not to help. Um, I was the oldest of uh, eight siblings so Iris had seven siblings, eight kids, and uh, I was just kind of expected to be the adult in some ways and to grow up quicker than I was perhaps ready for, Um, but it was was a pretty uh, up and down um, childhood experience.
0: So when you were in high school, did you have a lot of friends were you socialized or did you feel like an outcast at school as well
1: um i had friends in high school somewhat but they were not good friends um for instance i had a best friend who um would punch me in the stomach every time that i won like a a running race cuz i liked to run and anytime that a boy liked me instead of her, and um, it was really hard to let go of that relationship because she was primarily the the person who helped me get out of my house, you know, because I wanted to spend the night with, <laughs> with her, and her parents were more liberal, and she didn't have as many rules, and it was really nice, but, um, you know, in that respect, but the I realized like I was just trying to grasp at straws so I didn't really have to be lonely and alone and um, more than I already kind of felt like I was and so I think that's where the um alcohol came in at was just kind of a band-aid for some of this pain or abandonment, neglect. I felt that, especially the emotional neglect. So yeah, it was mostly dating Uh, in, in high school, to some extent, what are guys doing? And I was, um, just trying to find a place where I did feel like I was myself and I could be myself.
0: And uh, how did you view your future and how do you think people viewed you?
1: Well, I was told by a couple of teachers in high school that one was a typing teacher, And she said that um, she announced in front of the class that I was pretty dumb and I needed to, I guess, take remedial typing or something. It was pretty shameful. And then I had a um, color guard. I was in the color guard and one of the color guard instructors said that I couldn't find my way out of a wet paper bag. But I think for the most part, I mean, this was when I was in honor roll, (laughs) but I think that Maybe they could have been alluding to my common sense because it was, I didn't feel street smart, felt book smart. Once people got to know me, I would kind of goof off a lot or be cheery. And um, i come to realize sarcasm and humor was my defense mechanism. Um, But so I think a lot of times people mistake that for being silly and not smart. But I just thought, yeah, I'm going to college because I was kind of following this prescriptive life, you know, like, okay, make good grades, show up, go to college, get married, have a kid. And that's all the instructions I really got.
0: So before we had this call, uh, you told me that within your time at school, you ended up changing the idea of what you actually wanted to be a few times due to the outside influence of others. And right there, you just said, and I'm going to quote you, uh, that's all the instructions that uh, I really got. So is it fair to say that you were easily influenced by others and that you were also looking to other people uh, for guidance because you never got it from your parents?
1: Yes, that's fair. And another layer of it was, I thought, because one of the things I think I was taught when I was growing up was that happiness is outside of me. It's not something that I have. Power is outside of me. And so if you imagine you're at this dinner table and there's a salt shaker and, you know, they have the salt and pepper shaker in the middle of the table and somebody says, pass the salt, you know, to flavor their food. So, I was passing the salt shaker around as if it were my peace and power. So I was passing my peace around like a salt shaker, letting everybody use it and have it and be in control of it. And the same thing with, with my power. I just made so many other people like more powerful than me. I thought other people must know what I'm supposed to do because I've always been told what to do.
0: So eventually you finished school, you were out living your life, and you ended up meeting the person that this story is about. So how did you meet?
1: Well, um, one day I was, uh, let's see, I was 27 at the time, I believe, and I had just gotten my own um, home, bought my own home, and... Was working full time job, all that it was, it was all right. I was pretty lonely because um, I didn't really know anybody in this town I moved to for for the job. And uh, noticed that there was this guy that was a neighbor, relatively like lived in the same development. And then one day we were at checking the mail together, and um, he asked me to go on a hike. I loved hiking. Um. So I just said, "Yeah, why don't we? Why don't we do that?" And on the hike, I just felt like we had connected. But the the premise of going any further with it was really weird because I kind of talked to myself into really liking him because he looks just like my father. This is like kissing my father. I'm like, I cannot. I don't know how to do this, and I would, you know, share that with them. And then I thought, well, maybe I just need to kind of get over that. And from the get-go, uh, I went, we, you know, we just, we just kind of started casually dating. And then I stayed over um, his place one night, and he had this like briefcase of different flavored and colored condoms. And it was just like sent my red flag going in my belly. And I was like, what are you doing with all of the you know, all of it? He goes, It was just a prank at work. Somebody just sent me them. And I'm sitting here going, In your work briefcase have <laughs> like all I was like, Okay, you know, I just kinda let it go. And um there was a lot of mimicking I noticed that he was, you know, we had the hiking thing in common. And, um, we did we liked to be outdoors a lot. And so there was some of that mirroring happening and him telling me some of his childhood stuff and how he didn't really have a connection with his mom. And, you know, so I just thought, well, he's listening, he's attentive, this feels natural. Um now maybe I just needed to let my guard down and get this a chance. So there was a lot of like self-doubt or on the surface things happening that really influenced my decisions. Um
0: So what were the things that you liked most about him during this initial phase?
1: Well, really I liked the fact that he seemed pretty stable. He wasn't getting angry who was kind of like this game face one way of being and that I felt like he had listened and I was being heard and um also I was raised honestly to believe that I was supposed to find a guy who could pay for things and take me to dinners and and I didn't have to do any of that you know I, it was kind of like this trade off and so he would he would insist on paying for things and i think he used money as a way for you know um manipulation in the um relationship because i was raised as if i couldn't make money i had to marry a guy who could make money it was just one of those pieces that i never had in my childhood because my mom and father were always talking about money didn't grow on trees and the scarcity thinking and so I think it played somewhat of a role in the in the relationship and the fact that you know he just seemed to care or display some sort of um empathy that I that I saw but it was also like a whirlwind kind of romance and I think that that it was exciting and one of the traits that I have being raised in a family of dysfunction is this addiction to excitement. So it was just really exciting that there was this guy and we were moving fast and that's okay. You know, um it's better than staying home and not having a guy, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So we um started dating pretty much in um I think it was August or October and we had planned on waiting for a whole year to see if this was going to work out. And I had wanted to do that, but there was so much love bombing going on at the time. Like he would drive from his place to my place in the mornings before work and surprise me and tell me he was thinking about me and all of that. It was just something that I really felt special about and really enjoyed um, for a couple of months. And then One day we had um, uh, just, we were just out on on the couch and we had slept together. And then all of a sudden he was like, we need to get married. You know, will you marry me? And I just was like over flooded Yeah, we ended up not waiting a year to get married. And we got married in January over Martin Luther King holiday because it was convenient for him. He had extra time off of work so rather than do a wedding or anything we just eloped I wasn't really big time into a weddings anyways and in between time it was about three or four days before we were supposed to um, go and get married there was calls from another woman coming into the house and I confronted him about it, and I basically kind of gave him an ultimatum as for me and what's going on here. And he made it seem like it was some sort of fluke that wasn't really anything serious, and that he did definitely want to marry me. Um, but it was nothing like concrete. Looking back on it, it was kind of like empty words, like. I hope that we can make this work or I hope, you know, like nothing committal. you know, really showing commitment. It was just saying things without really saying things, um, that was happening. And I decided to go through with it because at, at this point, everybody thought I was crazy for getting married, um, especially so fast. And especially to him that everybody liked him, everybody liked him. Um, but they just questioned how fast everything was. And, um, And I was like, well, this is just par for the course. Nobody ever agrees with what I want and what I, what my decisions are. So anyways, we got married, sex stopped there. The phone calls from another woman um, still continued um, specifically from somebody he used to date for so long and um, ended up having a, I don't know if it was his child or not, but one day a teenage boy showed up on the doorstep to see him and he wouldn't talk to the kid and I have reason to believe that kid is still involved in my own son's life <laughs> right now. Um but he wouldn't tell me his name or anything. I just knew it was from a previous relationship that um he said he stayed in because of the kid. And um he did seem to have a knack with kids like kids really liked him. But then I learned that it's easy for kids to like you if you are only gonna spend Two hours with them, taking them somewhere that they would go know, with spending money on them. So, um, but, anyways, it was just I came to find out that that was the other woman, his ex, that was calling him. And uh, it was really uncomfortable for me. So I had asked him to stop the phone calls, and I think he did for a little bit, but then um, they had picked back up.
0: So when it comes to the hindsight of the first four years of your relationship, what are the things that you notice now?
1: Um, The hindsight was just the highs and lows, like getting me either inappropriate gifts or stringing me along with gifts or using money or the phone as a source of control and hoovering. And then the phone was used as a control mechanism um he got us walkie-talkie phones and uh he was upset if I didn't answer but it's okay if he didn't answer so there was some double standard stuff um going on and anytime that I'll voice any kind of needs or emotions then he would make it sound like everything was um my fault and my problem and um he just he just couldn't hear about any of that, it was hard to know: are my emotional needs really not being met, or are they being met? You know, and so it was kind of like a halfway, half and half kind of thing. Because I was like, I was, there was some things happening; we were doing vacations, um but I still felt like something was off. Counseling didn't work. He lied to counselors. He was only happy with one counselor who, who wanted to prescribe Zoloft with me because, or for me because of my anxiety, and that was, gave, that gave him an excuse to say I was the problem, you know, I needed to fix things, and he even commented when I took myself off of Zoloft, um, that, uh, he, that I was so much easier and better to deal with when I was on medication, which I don't know if that was really True or not, but it was a lot of spells of talking, not talking, him leaving for weeks at a time. I left one time to go to a hotel down the street, and then he came a week later just to um act like he wanted to fix things in our relationship. There was a lot of emotional roller coastering up and down, up and down um behavior and I just really didn't I really didn't know what to do or how to navigate it. I would call. Friends, but the people around me that I was talking to, just kind of were convincing me to stay and change. And I knew it wasn't all my fault, but everybody made it seem like it was my fault. And there again, I was still listening to the outside voices, friends, family, and I had to realize that these were choices they would make. It didn't mean that it was the right choice for me. But instead of doing that inflection and thinking about, did I? do I really need this or do I really, I just felt like I was all by myself and all these people around me were helping me drown, (laughs) drown in the water. It was like, I was trying to come up for air in the swimming pool and they just kept pushing me down. And for some reason I just couldn't move or, you know, it, it was really, um, it was really chaotic.
0: So your story is one of escalation points. So within the first four years of your relationship, there were a lot of troublesome things going on. But at the same time, from your perspective, um, you're taking the blame for a lot of stuff and internalizing it or in the sense of, Um, thinking that maybe things could be your fault or you're fighting against that um, in these types of abuses. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. And also um, I think that I accepted the love I thought I deserved and I really got my wires crossed on what love and abuse was. And I think in my growing up, it was communicated that love and relationships were hard. And they were supposed to be hard, you know, and so I believe like, well, if everybody else who's gone before me and been married for all these years, they were doing it, then they must know something more than I do.
0: So eventually you find out you are pregnant. So what happens from here?
1: Well, um, my pregnancy was kind of a last ditch effort and I'm trying to make something work thinking at least um, that would. Uh, distract us maybe or kind of meld us together a little bit because we have a commonality but um during the pregnancy he uh, and I were talking about what to do one day and uh the schedule and I thought that we were going to do we were going to do certain things like go to the bookstore first and then do something else and so um, we had agreed on that. I think it was like on our morning walk. And then when we went um, to the house and went upstairs, I was getting ready to go to the bookstore and thinking he was going to come. And he had to change his mind without telling me, I guess. And then he things escalated and he ended up strangling me and wrapping his hands around my neck and pushing me down on the futon that I was sleeping on in my room because we had been staying separate, sleeping separate for about a year or so. And um, I felt ashamed, I had self-doubt, I had fear. By then I had quit my full-time job and was going to try to pursue my own business. And so I was still relying on his own, on his income. And the pregnancy was very hard. I had to stop preterm labor three times. I was on bed rest. I gained a lot of weight um, before the Before I got pregnant, I was only 105 pounds. I was very unhealthy. I was obsessed with exercising and nutrition um, and barely eating. Um, I didn't realize that was a sign of unhappiness. I thought I was healthy. I was skinny. And that's what you're supposed to think, you know. But um, I I was just really unhappy. And so by, by the time the end of the pregnancy... I gained a lot of weight. And then and in between time, he was leaving the house. He was gone, I think, for three weeks um, during the pregnancy. He seemed to be excited about it, but I didn't realize until later he was just excited about controlling somebody else.
0: So a lot has happened in here as far as pregnancy control and you being strangled. So what are your feelings about what just happened when you got strangled? What's your reaction? Uh, what is your feelings based around that? What, how are you talking to yourself? Um, are you talking to other people?
1: Um, well, I had called one of my friends on uh, that day who wasn't around, um, to, to check in and hadn't got my message until much later that evening and call back, ask if I was okay. And I said, I was, um, I, he, uh, he asked my ex asked, um, after the strangulation if, um, I wanted to call the cops and I said, no, but I was kind of in freeze mode. I wanted to fight but then I was just in freeze mode and I was stunned. I was in shock. I felt ashamed. I didn't know what to do now. Um, And he left the scene and went to go to the bookstore after all and got this anger, this book on anger. And that's when I called my friend. Um, I had talked to my mom about it. My mom said, yeah, you don't need to leave. You just stay. And um, it was just like, are you serious? Um, But nobody led me to like maybe an abuse hotline or maybe a domestic abuse shelter. I couldn't even think of that at this point um, because I had already been to several counselors with him. And either they wanted to prescribe medication or they agreed with him. So I was really fatigued of that option and didn't think that that was going to work out well but it was i was just in this big survival mode of what do i do next and i remember thinking gosh if if my baby is unhealthy when he comes out, i'm gonna know why because this has been a very stressful um labor and the delivery was was worse um just you know just about the, the same it was just really eventful and traumatic as well um but yeah, it was it was a lot of mixtures of, you know, the shame. How's this smart girl getting stuck in this relationship? Or why am I still here? Or how do I get out? Like I just could not think. I I'm, I'm an outcome thinker, not necessarily a process thinker. So I knew I wanted out, but I didn't know any of the steps to do. You know, it's like I was looking at this pool of water, wanting to jump in this great pool of water, refreshing, you know, uh and I just can't
0: figure out how to do it. <laughs> so you're feeling trapped during this time. And is there a moment when after your child is born where you realize that I need to get out and you start to make moves? Is there, is there a certain point that something just kind of gives you that aha moment of what to do?
1: Well, um, there was a lot of emotional abuse that ensued after the, um, delivery and the whole, um, pregnancy thing. Um, and I realized that, um, I didn't want my son to see me being treated this way and I needed to get out. Um, so I did have some thoughts about it Um, I had tried several times to talk about mediation or separate living quarters, which he just took offense to. And he says, not good for our son to go back and forth. He's like, you can leave, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to keep the baby. And, um, he was keeping the car seat in full control of what was going on with with our son, and I was trying to breastfeed, so that was really difficult. And I stayed the night a few nights over at a friend's house, and um, left him with uh, our son. But I was just like, "This is enough. Like, I'm the mom. Like, I need to be with my son, and um, my son needs me." So um, I finally went back because they were gonna go to visit family and i decided not to go because i didn't want to play this happy dog and pony show which is that something he loves to do is very centered around vanity and making everything look okay even though it was not okay to make it all look great and i just didn't want anything to do with that um plan so he was going to take um our son to go on the trip with him and i was going to stay behind and um after one final attempt to just say, hey, let's go to mediation and let's work this out. He was like, I'm tired of your lips. I'm tired of your mouth. And he just flipped a switch just like that in the bedroom. And, um, so I just said, well, you know, I thought to myself, then you have two choices here. You can stay, seeing that this is just getting you in the muck even more, And nothing is going to change. You have to accept that. Nothing is going to change because it was hard to get to that level of acceptance. I kept thinking things were going to change. And um, so I said, or, so I offered to take uh, my son to go get some clothes for the trip. And he was agreeable to that. um, Because I knew at least I would have some time to think. So during that time, I was calling friends and, um, I the the store wasn't open they were having some sort of fire drill at the time my son had fallen asleep so it bought me some time to talk to some friends in the parking lot he had called 45 minutes later just to check on us and I just gave him the update told him I would call him back later and um you know but my in the meantime my friend said come over here to the bookstore they were there that's usually where a lot of my friends hung out and um They gave me $50 in cash. We called the police, making sure that I could leave. And they said, at least the cash will get you gas money to where we're going to go. And now's the time to go. And so I was like, okay. So that's what I did. I drove um, to my sister's house. And I didn't have a good relationship with my sister. But it was the only place he didn't know where she lived. And um she was near my mom and her family, but I knew that uh, I couldn't tell my mom about this because she liked my ex. <laughs> so, so she would turn on me and um tell my ex stuff. So I didn't think that was the right thing to do. So, anyways, I I left. I went to the police station to see if I could get a restraining order. I couldn't. They wouldn't give me one. Um. And on the way, like I was almost down there or uh, I think the police thing happened. And then he called me back and said, my ex called and said, where are you? It's time to come home. This was like, mind you, three hours later. And um, he said, this is your last straw. I said, no, this is your last straw. I'm gone, I'm done. And, and I said, I've had enough. I don't deserve this. And my son does not deserve me, you know, seeing me being treated this way. And he was mad. Um, So I didn't realize what it was like to own my own power. But here I was again, like in a non-ideal situation with a newborn. And um, I didn't really know what this next step was. Like, it wasn't really a plan. It was just kind of like, I need to go.
0: And after you escaped, you do end up getting divorced and you listen to your lawyer and you really just want to get things over kind of quickly. And you don't take alimony in this uh, case at all. And when things do get settled, eventually uh, you told me that post-separation abuse started to poke up from there. So, Tell us about the first instances of post-separation abuse that you started to endure.
1: Um, He would return my son to me sick on the weekends. I have to take off Mondays off of work. People at work thought I was just like this party animal because I was like 33 at the time and just wanting to um, have long weekends. And that wasn't the case. So he wouldn't show up for some on the weekends. He would show up at my doorstep or make harassing phone calls to talk with my son who had no teeth at the time. He would call 20 times in like a half an hour to say, oh, I can call anytime. Oh, I can call anytime. Well, I was in the midst of trying to pick my son up from daycare after a long day at work and take him home. And you're calling at the most inopportune time. You know, so it was crazy.
0: So it sounds like he's exerting a lot of power and control through your son. And it's not necessarily that he cares about your son. He's maybe showing to the outside world that he cares, possibly. But you know the real truth of what is going on. And that must be a maddening thing to to go through. So how are you feeling uh, at this time?
1: It was... nightmare even more of a nightmare um my son was still sick he had a lot of trauma issues there was just way too much change and transition for him I thought as long as we had counseling in the agreement that was going to be okay but lo and behold the counselor wanted my ex involved and we my ex wasn't going to do that so um that didn't really work out Uh, I tried counseling again and joint counseling with him again, thinking it was going to be, hoping it was going to be different and it wasn't. Um, So it was a lot of craziness in 20, he's taken me back to court twice to prove that I'm, try to prove that I'm psychologically crazy and I need an evaluation. And of course my PTSD was showing um, my trauma was showing and it was this reactive abuse, right? Cause PTSD is the result of abuse. Um, but nobody knew that. Nobody cared about it. And it was hard to pinpoint because so many people just kept giving him the benefit of the doubt. And yeah, it was, <laughs> it was
0: nuts. So a lot of people might not realize that a lot of things that are going on here, uh, Is considered financial abuse and that you are having to deal with just court costs, uh, continuous court costs, and child support is also being withheld from you at this time, and also different types of evaluations are going on at this time, where just a lot of things are, are really adding up and putting you into a whole. Are there other types of financial abuses that are going on?
1: Well, yeah, he would never take my um, son to the doctor. So I had to do that. He would return um, him to me sick, doctor's cost, medicine cost, because he wouldn't pick it up. Um, he wouldn't buy him clothes that fit. And uh, so I had to There was just a lot of expenses that he didn't want to do. The only expenses he would do is when people were watching, like at the school, if the school wanted like books from the book fair ordered or whatever, it was the way he would garner people's like, oh, you know, like support is by paying for his book bag, paying for the books, (laughs) paying for his school fees because other people were watching. So it was, it was, yeah, it was nuts. (laughs)
0: and another big one that people don't realize is that he's interfering in you going to work in earning a living because you're constantly having to deal with all of these issues plus you know you're the caregiver of your child so if your child is ever sick you also have to do that But you're you're constantly tending to all these things which contribute to financial abuse as well
1: yeah he definitely sabotaged my job my work and um my son as a pawn to hurt me you know through the medical neglect you know there was just so many things that i had to foot the bill for so it was it was a lot and i feel like <laughs> he um he just he just did every little thing possible and it was all fight driven
0: So you use the word spite and with your abusive ex, that is a big thing with him. And he is someone who is playing the long game of the smear campaign. He was smearing you to the school system, teachers and administrators for your entire relationship and post-relationship. And he's kind of playing the good cop to your bad cop. So when you had concerns over teaching plans for your child who has autism and PTSD you had issues with teachers when it came to the best interest of your child and he's on the other side and he is telling the teachers that they are right and this reinforces the things that he is saying about you with his other interactions so he's playing this doting dad and the one that buys the books And he's been doing these things for a very long time when it comes to the school system and all the different types of teachers and the administrators of the school for your son. And he's playing this really long game, hoping that one day he can find something that sticks to take your child from you. A one thing that was brought to court that was brought up had to do with the school system and involved a truancy charge, but that got thrown out. But he is playing this long game smear campaign, and it has always involved the school. And he was just really looking for a perfect scenario eventually to have that long campaign, that long smear campaign work. And eventually that did happen. So while you were being a single mom in every way and tending to your child at home advocating for him at school, and you're also making a living as best you can, you eventually want to homeschool your child because you think that that's in your child's best interest because school and the school system that he was in and those teachers really weren't doing the job that you thought you could do. You thought you could do it better And then on some bad advice from your lawyer about relocation, after you had actually already started to homeschool your child, you then ended up moving out of county and you were caught in this violation of your custody order for doing so. And this is when this long play of smearing really comes into play because now the teachers are on his side and... When the court case happened, your husband then brought these teachers in as witnesses. And, you know, they said that, you know, you were doing things that aren't in the best interest of your child. And just like that, the court in 15 minutes said you're about to lose custody of your child after 13 years. And this is just absolutely a terrible and it's devastating. So, where are you now as far as trying to get custody back of your child?
1: Well, I'm still looking into options and to see if there's attorneys willing to take it on. Of course, this has been quite a financial hit. So, I'm trying to weigh my options about the timing of it all. Um, my son's in middle school. He'll be going to high school next year. I, you know, now is the kind of time to do it or before August. So I am just still kind of learning the ins and outs of what can be done.
0: And how's your son feeling?
1: Um, devastated. He, him, he and I are very close. Um, he knows that I know him the best and he told, tells me that all the time. And, um, I have introduced him to the ACA rooms, the Adult Childrens of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Family rooms, so we are able to have um, conversations about, you know, toxic people, relationships, um, identity, things like that. Um, and I'm I'm grateful about that. But um, on the weekends that I do see him, the bulk of the time he wants to spend in bed.
0: And you mentioned the adult children of alcoholic rooms. So that has been a big part of your own healing process, even though it's very difficult to heal. Yes, you're out of this, but you're still dealing with this situation because you have a child and that abuse can still happen on how you were treated with your communications that are that are going on and the financial abuse that's going on. But within the healing that you have been doing, how has the adult children of alcoholic rooms um, worked for you?
1: Well, on a fundamental level, it's given me some understanding as to why I made some of the decisions that I've made, especially in romantic partners or in this situation. Um, it made me... Uh, start escaping this scapegoat role um, to where I'm like tracking everything it's just taken a lot of work but without the I entered these rooms in 2018 and I would not have realized my level of codependence and above all I would not have realized how um, sneaky and normal family trauma was especially family generational family trauma um I know that I'm worthy of love a big hit in the punch in the gut for me was um realizing that I was attracting emotionally unavailable people because I was emotionally unavailable and to me I just It took me a long time to understand that and to accept that about myself. And so it wasn't necessarily a bad thing or like I was being intentional about being emotionally unavailable. Also, it's helped me realize, yes, I passed down some of this trauma to my son, but I've also been part of the solution in helping him uh, realize, hey, this is what's going on and build some self-awareness within some emotional literacy. Um, he's able to call himself out on his patterns. He calls me out on my patterns. Um, so we have a very, 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 very tight relationship. Um, because this the the programs really kept helps me keep my serenity. I really don't think I could get out of the bed without it. Um, especially with all the stuff I've had to endure and still enduring. But the distance, um from it all like the school and all that's really helping me heal and it's helping me learn more about myself and build that intimacy with myself because until I can build more intimacy with myself I don't feel like I can build it with anybody else um so that's what I'm focusing on is prioritizing myself prioritizing my healing and you know stopping my overthinking because it was attempt to control when I'm trying to have everything situated. Well, I do that because I was in so many traumatic situations where I wasn't thinking. And I was trying to control through the predictability or unpredictability of other people's behaviors. And, you know, it allows me to give myself some grace and compassion through through it all. And kind of ask myself, hmm, you know, how can, how can I move forward? What can help me? And I don't feel alone now.
0: And if you had any words of wisdom for people listening, what would it be?
1: I think that for me, I didn't see the things that were going on because I was over myself. The survival mode kept me going and going and going and not seeing my own patterns and not reflecting on my own behavior. And so the work for me was to slow down was to prioritize myself was to realize that self-care isn't selfish was to realize my own self-worth and take care of my body and my mind. So, um, I could take and keep my power um, back. So I'm just saying that because I notice a lot of people have issues with not being busy and, um, you know, wanting to overcommit themselves. And sometimes what I will, what I've learned to do is to put self care in my calendar first. Um, and then everything else around that.
0: Well, uh, Sylvia. Thank you for being a guest on our show. Your story was not an easy one to tell. So a really big thank you for being here and sharing your story with everyone. Thank you. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Sylvia was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do read our instructions and send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have a support group. So if you need support, join our support group at NarcissistApocalypse.com top of the page there's a button that says support group when you click on that button it takes you to our very own safe social network there you will find that we have zoom meetings every wednesday night thursday afternoons and saturday nights we also have forum boards for you to post on to get the support that you need the validation you need from other survivors that are on there it is a great group of people that we have in our support group so if you need support please do join our support group and if you need even more support please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org at domesticshelters.org they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are going through they have every phone number every email address and every website address for shelters and agencies no matter how big or small your town is domesticshelters.org has it there it is a wonderful free resource so please do visit domesticshelters.org today And one last thing before we leave, we are doing an initiative and it has to do with survivor businesses and we want to put money into the pockets of survivors, people that are currently in their situations that are struggling in these situations and finances is is a big reason why you can't get out and you need to squirrel money away. We want to help you and also people that are out of these situations but are, you know, having trouble making a living, putting a roof over your head, putting food on the table. We want to help you. So we're creating a page on our website for survivor businesses. So if you are a graphic designer, if you are, a real estate agent, if you are a copywriter. Or if you're an artist, it doesn't matter what type of business that you have. Send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Put Survivor Business in the subject line so we know what your email is about. And we're working on creating this page. And we're going to try and get as many eyeballs on this page so we can get people to use your services, your businesses, buy your art, everything like that. So please do send that in today. And that is it for our episode today. So from myself and Sylvia, we hope you have a good night.